and mindfulness, compassion, and purpose save corporate leadership. Hi, this is Craig Welch from Black Moss Partners and host of the Leaders Lounge podcast. Since mid-March, we face an expanding global pandemic, associated extreme economic volatility, and mass protests over racial injustice. The convergence of these three crises has many business leaders questioning if their leadership skills that they have honed over the years will be the same skills they will need to face the challenges of the new normal. In this new normal, leadership is more important than ever before because the best leaders define reality and inspire hope. A recent Harvard Business Review article by Carol Kaufman points out the negative impact on companies when leaders do not leave with compassion, especially during a crisis. Here to expand on this topic and give us her own perspective is Nadine mendelek Timon, who has coached and counseled many C-suite executives in various industries, including financial services, manufacturing, insurance, high-tech, and telecommunications. Nadine founded her boutique consulting and then coaching for change business 12 years ago and has a rich variety of missions focusing on individuals, groups, project teams, organizational cultures, and management leadership in Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and the United States. She has coached leaders working for Apple, BNP Paribas, Burberry, F. Hoffman LaRouche, Groupon, Heidelberg Cement Group, Herman Miller, Intel, Johnson & Johnson, MSCI, Population Services International, and UNDP. Hi, Nadine. How are you? Welcome to the Leaders Lounge podcast. How are you today? Hi, Craig. Thank you for having me. We're very excited to have you on today. We've got a lot to cover. Today is about can mindfulness, compassion, and purpose save corporate leadership. But before we get into this very hefty topic, I wanted to just know how you've been doing since the March when this pandemic really became a global crisis. How's your life been since then? It has been quite a roller coaster, and I'm thanking my training and the long hours of work on myself that allowed me to go through all this unscathed. So uh, as you know, there was this COVID uh, pandemic in Paris, and I happened to be in Paris when this happened, so I got stuck for a couple of months in the city. And then after that, when I was supposed to go back to Lebanon, because I live between Beirut and Paris, we just had this enormous explosion in Beirut uh, beginning of August, which means that I postponed going back there, and I had to face the consequences of all these upheavals. But I'm doing just fine. Thank you for asking. Oh, it's great. And I know, as we've talked in the past, to have that ability to understand other people's perspectives. So how understanding how you've been challenged with the pandemic is very different than how I've been doing it in London. You were in Paris and people in, in, in the United States who are, are, are listening in on this. So it's good to hear that you're, you're doing okay. Let's first start off because we talk about this mindful and, and compassion, but I don't want to make the assumption that there's a blanket and a definition about what that means. And I wanted to start off by getting your definition, your perspective, when someone talks about a mindful, compassionate, purpose-driven leader, what does that mean to Nadine? If someone said, Nadine, what what does that mean to, to be that kind of leader? Yes, I can only give you my very humble opinion, because if you were to type a definition for all these terms, you might find many thousands and hundreds of thousands of definitions for leadership, many thousands for mindfulness and compassion and purpose-driven. So all I can do is just to give you my own take on it according to my own subjective reality. So for me, being mindful, and that's very much what I've been doing over the last few months, is to be present with whatever is 
in a non-judgmental way and just be curious. And I think the main word here is curiosity. Being curious with everything that I'm sensing, feeling, thinking, and just watching in a non-judgmental, compassionate way what is happening with me, feeling all those thoughts, those sensations, those emotions running amok through my body. And I have to say that has helped me a lot to go through all these few months of COVID and then later on, as I said, the blast in Beirut. So that's what, for me, is being mindful, is really non-judgmental. It's cultivating uh, presence, and that presence allows focus, clarity, and definitely compassion for myself and for others, for what we're going through all together. So when it comes to uh, compassion, I would distinguish, because we had that conversation before, the distinction that I make between empathy and compassion. The empathy is feeling, thanks to the mirror neurons we have, so we are literally wired to feel that way, we're able to feel what another person is feeling. And we can feel it deeply in a way that can be overwhelming and too intense. When you are in compassion, you get also with empathy to understand that another person is suffering. You get to feel what they are feeling. and you intend and you have this intention of helping those people. You want to alleviate their suffering. So you're not jumping in the hole with them and digging yourself deeper in the hole. You try to be present and just feel without being overwhelmed. And again, in a non-judgmental way. Now, don't you have to, I mean, we've had these conversations before, some really good ones. You, you gave me some feedback about the compassion of when to jump in or when not to jump in to try and help. I, I thought that was really important. I don't know if you want to just highlight that just a bit, but when you gave me feedback on that, I thought that was something that people should you know, understand that. When you're compassionate, you're not running away from the suffering that other people are bringing when they are present with you and they are overwhelmed by a strong emotion that could be grief, sadness, anger. You remain like in really very calm while at the same time being completely soft-hearted, listening to what this other person is sharing, not feeling yourself overwhelmed or wanting to run away from the suffering that you are seeing, observing, sensing in the other person. That for me is what allows me to sit every day with my clients, whether in coaching or therapy, I can sit with somebody who is completely overwhelmed by a a fit of anger or crying in a desperate way and just be there holding the space for them to feel that they can be fully who they are and they can feel everything they are feeling without being afraid of having to manage me. I can just sit there and feel and soften my heart and just welcome them just the way they are. Okay, great. That's being present with the other person. And then purpose, purpose purpose-driven. I think maybe that's probably the one that's pretty used a lot these days. Everyone's talking about brands having a purpose, being purpose-driven. It's like the biggest buds word. I think you hear now, how do you view it from your perspective about being purpose-driven? It's all about the why, not about the what or the how. So it's all about who you truly are, what makes you come alive. This is the feeling that you stop asking yourself, what do I want from life? 
and it becomes what does life want from me? So when you're purpose driven, you have a great clarity of why you're doing what you're doing. So if you ask people, and I've noticed that several times, sometimes when I mentor young uh, coaches and I ask them, why is it that you're doing particularly this kind of coaching or this particular kind of population that you want to coach? Why is that so important to you? And I hear a lot answers around the what and the how, and they find it very difficult to answer the why, but I keep on probing until at one point it comes out of their guts in a very, like a cry or, or a passionate plea that comes out of them because, and then you realize it's something very personal, very much the texture of who they are, just the way they are. And that's the purpose. So, of course, you can always find catchy sentences with all kinds of jargon to explain what would be a purpose-driven leader. Of course, when we talk about corporate world, the leader might be like the steward of the purpose of the organization. Right, yeah. And again, it's going to be, why does he want to do that? Why does he want to be the leader of that corporation? Why is it important for him to be the steward of the purpose of that organization? How is he aligned with the purpose of that organization. So again, we come back to being purpose-driven is to be very clear about who you are and how aligned you are. I think what's very interesting, you just touched on, brands have a purpose, right? And then the leaders have a purpose. And even if the leader says, my purpose is the brand's purpose, no, why is that your purpose? You keep saying, keep proving for the why. I think the next thing is, you talked about these three components, is one more, when you think about this kind of, leader that can really kind of connect and be self-aware and be compassionate and and especially during a crisis is one more important than the other when you think about mindfulness compassion purpose-driven is one more important than the other in your perspective I mean, how do you look at that in terms of their importance in this kind of different type of leadership i don't separate them i like to use the image of the three-legged stool yeah. Um, that is very often the stool that is used in Africa where I lived for 14 years. So I really like this image. And also the three-legged stool is the nice way to see that you could have a polarity between two terms. And there's the third way. That's what it's all about, the famous trinity. Yeah. So why would we need to separate them? In order to be mindful, we need to be self-aware. And in order to be self-aware, we need to be present with ourselves without any judgment or self-criticism. Therefore, to be compassionate with ourselves so we can be compassionate with others as well. It's accepting who we are, the way we are, the moment we are, so we are able to offer that to others as well. If we cannot do that with ourselves, we cannot do it to others or with others. So for me, some leader who happens to be Self-aware is somebody who has started to ask himself or herself questions around, who am I? Why am I here? What am I to do? And they may not have the answers immediately, and yet they are asking themselves those questions. So by observing themselves, they become self-aware. By becoming self-aware, they are much more mindful, present, and compassionate with whatever is. And that gives them a clear idea about what is it that I would like to change or correct that served me well for many years, but now I feel like it's not doesn't really serve me anymore. I can let it go. So I have space for something new to 
emerge. I would not separate the three of them. I would definitely come back to the idea of the three-legged uh, stool. Yeah, and, and so the way you just explained, they're, they're so interconnected, right? One feeds into the other, and it's understanding that, tapping into all three. And I'm, I'm quite sure when you're working with corporate executives, you're doing that with them and, and making them understand how they're all related and that works toward their development. I guess being a very analytical person that I am, and when we talk about topics like this, I'm like, okay, how do we measure this, right? Because I don't know how that's possible. Because if you start to, to want to see these components in your leaders, you're saying, I'm starting off from a point with these individuals and I want to see them progress. Is this something that's easily done or some that's easier for mindfulness than it is? And we just talked how they're interrelated. How, how does someone understand where the movement is going with a particular person? Is it measurable to see where they are in the spectrum of any of these components? Yeah. The question is, who wants to know and for what purpose, if it's measurable or not. If we move away from a pure mechanistic view of an organization and a leadership style, move into something more organic, and we could even uh, imagine that everything becomes like what we know about the brain today. You need it all. The question is, can you measure it? You can observe it. You cannot necessarily measure it. Or if you want to push into measurement, the closest thing you will have to, to, to measurement will be to have a 360 evaluation of your leader before and after. And as you go, you can see how certain actions, certain ways of being are going to reflect and impact your environment, your peers, your subordinates, your superior, who can all testify as to how more self-aware have you become in the way you are behaving in the way you're accomplishing, in the way you're achieving, what has changed? In the way you're relating to others, how self-aware are you? How aware are you of others? And that will be very clearly noted on a very simple scale from one to five, if you really insist on, on having such measurements. Everything when it comes to these issues is subjective reality. And it's yeah. going to be going through the, the filters of every one of us. Maybe compassionate can be a very high standard for some people and for others it's not. So who is going to judge how far you've gone on that scale or not? So again, you might have outliers when you do your 360 evaluations and it's important to take into account the outliers of both extreme. And at the same time, you look at where is everybody on average rating you. And if there is like a convergence of ratings in the middle, you will see if people like I had some of my leaders who went from two to five, two being rather poor, five being excellent when it comes to how unaware they were to being superbly aware and showing everybody that they have become aware of the impact that they have on others, not only on the impact that others have on them. So that has been clearly shown with this kind of measurements. But the question is, again, why would we want to come back to the idea of measuring in metrics term. Yeah, I think to your point, it's breaking that paradigm because in the corporate world, everything is measured to see progress. So your point is, okay, why? What's the value of that? You could enter that and try and find a way to measure. If you can't really have an answer to that, then why are we doing it? And I think what you talked about is those observations, right? Are you seeing that person starting to apply themselves in a different way? I guess one question, you know, just based on your comment, before you take on a client, 
let's say a, a company has said, hey, Nadine, we want you to work with this person, this leader. And I know we're going to talk about some examples later on, but if someone came to you and said, hey, well, we got this particular leader, she's running this part of the organization, and we feel that she's really lacking the ability to, to show compassion for her team. Do you ask for any kind of observations or do you do that when you have that kind of initial session? What I'm kind of get at, do you try and get some kind of pre-diagnostic read on this person from the organization that's assigning them over or you do that when you first meet them and try and get a sense of where they are on those components? Well, it can happen that the organization, when they contract me, tell me from the beginning, we really would like to keep this person who is a very high performer. And we are a bit concerned maybe about something that, yes, belongs to a lack of awareness or compassion or mindfulness that makes some subordinate feel like they're walking on eggs around that leader or some peers who feel that it's difficult to work with that leader. So they start telling me, oh, this is pretty much what we'd like you to focus on. That being said, I will, of course, listen to what the uh, organizational authority will tell me. At the same time, I will be completely open and coming with a clean slate to listen to the leader the, the coachee telling me exactly what's happening, what is that leader aware of, and how much are they aware of the way people will rate them, will give their feeling about them or not. Some people just don't no. care. Other people will be extremely sensitive to that. And others will just say from the very beginning, you know what, I can feel that I have this impact, but I don't care because what is important is that I achieve my goal and it doesn't matter how. And so this is where we start to unpack with the leader. What is bringing that person here? And what is it that person want for him or herself? It's very important that each leader understands where they're going and they're not just uh, uh, kowtowing or obeying yeah. some organizational... Well, well, they don't know that. It's like on any trip, if you don't know where you're going, it's kind of hard to <laughs> be a part of the journey, right? So I think that's really important. You sent me, and now we're getting back to the crisis stuff, you sent me that, that article from the Harvard Business Review, the one that was without compassion, resilient leaders will fall short by Carol Kaufman. And I, I really appreciate you giving that to me because I, I really connected with it. And, and basically it's the article is about when these crises happen, leaders that are really resilient, they get it done, they push through. And then they talk about this concept of contempt where they see the people who they manage aren't kind of living up to the same level of tenacity that they have. And, and they're talking about why, why compassion is needed. And I want to get your thoughts just for the people listening. There's a, this was in the beginning of it. It has a couple of examples of leaders who are very good at getting things done in a crisis, but don't really have a self-awareness that not everyone is like them. And there's this part, just on just a small piece written in the piece, it says, most leaders experience contempt attacks at one time or another, especially during times of crises, uncertainty and high stress. Leaders need to be strong and resilient to make it through these periods. Paradoxically, however, those very strengths make leaders vulnerable to these attacks because in the heat of the moment, they forget that not everyone is as strong and resilient as they are. So I'm quite sure you've seen this a lot. I'd love to get your thoughts about these types of leaders, and you've probably worked with a lot of them. Yes. It happens particularly when you get higher and higher in the hierarchy. Uh, people are put in position of authority, organizational chart authority. It doesn't mean that they are leaders. 
because they have that authority. And one of the reasons I'm being brought on board coaching those people who are going from vice president to senior vice president or the senior vice president themselves is exactly that. As you grow into different, bigger shoes where you're going to have to have maybe more of a strategic mind and not just be the person who is operationally delivering, there are qualities that will show up to show us if you are going to handle well this new challenge or not. So it's all about leading self leading others, and not just your ability to leading the organization or its implementation. So when it comes to those top people, very often I'm working with them on competencies around leading self and leading others. And when it comes to leading self, the number one uh, competency is about self-awareness. How self-aware are they? How resilient are they? What kind of executive presence do they have? Et cetera, et cetera. When it comes to leading others is what is their capacity to be in a true listening with others, their capacity to build relationship and partnership with others, to communicate in a way that motivates followers to want to give their best to follow that leader, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to come back to somebody who is considering everybody else as just do it tough and strong. You need to be the same way. It's completely ignoring that who you are comes from a whole set of uh, factors from the family you were born in, the experiences you've had in your life. And since they are very different from person to person, if you imagine that everybody is going to be like you, what kind of self-awareness do you have there? What kind of awareness of others do you have there? To imagine that the whole world is like monocolor. It's not. The world is diverse. You will have people who will be dominated by fear, while others are just pushing through, having a different way to deal with their fear. Some people do not want to go back and work today because they are really fearful of catching COVID and they are really afraid. Others are just saying, oh, no, I'm okay. I'm not going to catch it. Uh, They could be in denial, trying to be very strong. So it's becoming very important that you know how to be open to creating that space where everybody can step in and be themselves. And you create that container of trust where you know that you can come and be yourself and not try to hide if you're afraid, not try to hide if you're angry, but you can just put it on the table and you can literally speak for your parts and say, you know what, there's a part of me that is really fearful of coming back to work right now. I would rather stay at home and work from home. And you know what, it's interesting to your point, because I think when there's a crisis, it really brings out those differences within your organization, because like you said, the the leader maybe go, okay, we're going to, we're going to attack this. We're going to work harder than before. And then you look around and you see some people that you may have seen as your strongest leaders kind of hesitate or freeze a bit. And you're thinking, okay, what's happening here? What's wrong? Where the crisis may have triggered something that they have to deal with that is affecting their perspective. And to your point, if you're a leader and you don't understand that, and that's where this whole thing around contempt and how powerful a negative thing that can be in an organization when the way I look at it, and I've seen it, the leader just looks at you and is disappointed that you're not the same person that they saw before. And that has a huge impact. Yes. And one thing I noticed with some of my leaders, and I have one in particular, it was interesting because when I coached her, 
uh, a vice president. When I coached her, she was at home with her two children of about nine and 10 and seven or so. And her little girl kept on jumping in front of the screen. It was hard for us to have that conversation, that coaching conversation. So when I saw that the little girl jumped in three times and her mother just couldn't find a way to keep her and control her because she wanted to control her first to ask her, uh, stay put, I'm having this conversation here. I ended up inviting her. I asked her mother, could you please invite your little girl to just step in with you and let's take maybe a moment and we're going to do a little bit of mindfulness meditation where we're just going to be present together, breathe together, and then just see what happens. She was surprised. She said, okay, why not? Let's try it. So her little girl came and the three of us started through a little bit of a 10 minutes mindfulness meditation, which was very simply just noticing with curiosity what's happening in our body, what kind of emotions are running through, what are our thoughts, and just see them as like little clouds going through a blue sky. It's just there. We follow it and then it's gone. And then here is this other thought, etc. So we just went through that little meditation. The little girl calmed down immediately. When we were done 10 minutes later, I asked her, so how are you feeling now, sweetie? And she looked at me and she said, much better. And then she started crying. She jumped into her mother's arms and she was crying and crying and crying. So my client looked at me like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, just hold her. Let her know you're there. And then I just talked to the little girl. I said, can you feel your mother's heart? You're safe. You're okay. Your mother is there with you. You're not alone. She immediately calmed down. And after two minutes, she went to do her homework. We have not heard anything after that. And my client was very surprised. And she said, what just happened now? I said, what happens is that those children are locked up with you because of that confinement. And they're getting nervous and anxious because they can't get their energy out there running around playing. That's number one. Number two, you are yourself anxious. You're sitting there. You're going through lots of disruptions in your company. You have people that you have to fire. You have all this conversation you're going to have. And the space there is thick with all this energy and this anxiety. So your children are picking up on that no matter what. Now, imagine when that happens in a corporation that may not be your children at all, but when you're a leader, if you are permeating the space with either too much uh, anxiety, frenetic action, or on the contrary, denial, pretending that you're not seeing that everybody is afraid, you are passing on this kind of anxiety to people around you. Then what are you going to do about that? If you ignore it and pretend that it's going to be all right and you have contempt for people because they're not able to push through, would you do that with your own child? For example, would you look at your daughter and say it's not okay that you feel scared and anxious? No. Why would you do that at work with another human being? Well, you know what? And this is going to lead into my next question because that example that you just told me, you had a mother, that's her own children, and she didn't even realize. So that's someone that she knows pretty intimately. And then you, you, to your point, you bring it out to the corporate world and there's that less of a knowledge, right? And I guess what I'm trying to say, even a mother cannot pick up on these cues sometimes with their own children, which makes it even more challenging uh, as you talk about being self-aware for leaders to really be able to t take a pulse of what's going on and how their actions. And then you put this environment where people are doing it over Zoom and it's even more distant. So it's really challenging. And, and look, Nadine, you've made me a believer, right? Because before I was like, 
look, and, and this is this is my next question. I've worked with some leaders who they thought they're like Winston Churchill or General Patton. They just grind through things, yell and push things through. And like that HBR article, you get through it. I think that one example of a person that got through the 2008, 2009 crisis, they had a this gentleman during COVID, you get through it, but you leave scorched earth behind you. And I have to tell you, and this is why I say I'm, I'm you know, more of a believer in you, not in you, but what you could do is that I've worked with the leaders who I never thought that they could change. These old dogs, I've been groomed like this. They've been rewarded because of their ability to just push things through. But I guess what you're saying is even at that level, you've got a 58-year-old SVP, EVP, CEO who's been leading that particular way their entire career and been doing extremely well. And it seems like things are changing now. And so he can evolve, right? I mean, that's what you're saying. I guess that's what I'm hearing. At least you've converted me to think that. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. We are constantly evolving, constantly changing. It's a total subjective reality to believe that we don't change and we remain completely fixed in our ways. That's not true. What you show is one thing, what you feel is another one. Are you ready to go deep or not? This is really very much up to every one of us. You can bring the horse to the water. You cannot force it to drink. Yeah. So all I'm all I can do is that when I see this mother with her children and she's a very bright very strong performer strong achiever and she's toughening it up because she needs to feel herself toughened up when she has to fire hundreds of people because of this crisis. And she needs to uh, react to everyday poor results uh, left, right and center. She hardens herself to be able to push through. And one thing that we work together is it's not necessary. You can allow yourself to feel with compassion what's happening with yourself and with your environment, and including with the people that you are firing. And this is where, when you asked me those different questions, I turned to her and I said, I coached her for about six months, and I said to her, could you please give me your take, your testimonial on what it feels like leading through crisis? What would you say? And I don't know if you were interested in me reading to you her answer, but it is very much such a difference between where she was six months before uh, the coaching and six months later. Now, I didn't do anything and I never do anything. All I do is like maybe putting a mirror in front of people who then take that opportunity to look at themselves and go inside discovering all the resources they have. And the resources are there. So all there is to do is to bring, take out the obstacles that are standing in the way of reconnecting to yourself and to who you truly are. And yeah. this person had already all these marvelous skills and competencies inside of her. And because she thought that this would be more helpful than this other one, we all end up with protective uh, strategies. And those protective strategies work well for a while in certain contexts and environment. And then we keep on repeating them and on and on it goes. And then one day it doesn't work anymore. And one day we have to change strategy. How do we change strategy if we're not to, uh, even aware of it? So the process that I always put in place with all my clients is start with self-observations. Take the time for the next three weeks every day to stop three times a day and ask yourself, what has triggered me today? What did I feel or sense in my body when this happened? Can I put words on the emotion that I felt at that moment? 
what were the thoughts that were associated to those sensations and those emotions? And what is the strategy that I took to get myself out of that discomfort? Because we always tend to want to run away from discomfort. Yet, very often I notice people do not think about what is it that I want to run toward. It's more like I want to run away from. And uh, so start there. Start observing yourself every day. Ask, you know yourself so well. You're the only person who's an expert of yourself. I'm not an expert of you. All I can do is tell you, could you please just observe what happens to you every day? Three times a day, stop. What has just happened? When you wake up in the morning, you put your feet on the ground. Do you even know what state of mind you get up with? Which will, of course, inform how you will be reacting the first four hours of your day. And then things will happen. Phone calls and, and Zoom meetings and God knows what. Uh, comes lunchtime. What's happening for you? What triggered you? Yeah, I think the thing that you've always hounded into me is that point you just made. It's important for you to understand the teams you're managing and their perspective. But the first person you got to get to understand is you. Yeah. Like that, that is, you know, and so yeah. you got to start there. And I think your point about stopping every day and, and just reflect and what's going on with you, where are you going? What are you trying to accomplish? What's your purpose? We very rarely, I think people do that. And I think people would be very well rewarded by taking that step first, because as you said, no one's going to know you better than yourself and, and putting the mirror. Another thing, I know we've talked about this, I mean, and I know you give an example that you just had about that one woman. And I know we've talked in the past about sometimes it's around timing and the person may not just be at that point ready yes. um, for it. And, and I'd, I'd love for you to talk, because I know you have a great example of when that happened to you once, when the person just wasn't at that point where they could accept that way of thinking about um, themselves and, and others around. Maybe you could expand on that a bit for me. Yes. Accepting people just the way they are, where they are, at the moment they are. And this is where we come back to those qualities of being mindful, compassionate, and self-aware. So if I am with somebody that comes to me saying, I am committed to do this and that, and then they're not doing it and they're struggling. And no matter what, they keep on sabotaging themselves. My first question is, huh, there must be a logic behind this. So I become curious and I start asking questions like, oh, I noticed this and that. So what is it that you're hoping will happen if you keep on doing this? Or what is it you're imagining would happen if you were not to continue doing this? And this is where people start realizing that, oh my God, that's true. I always do the same thing here because I'm expecting this and I'm afraid of that. And so I put that into place. The fact that you can come back to yourself and realize what's happening in you, that requires mindfulness. That requires that you're ready to look at yourself and see what's happening inside of you. Now, some people are really scared of going there. They have been repressing and putting really down deep into deep, deep, dark valleys, things that they had to take off so they can continue to function and move on. They're not ready to go and open up that Pandora box. They're afraid. They're afraid that if they open it, they will be overwhelmed and they won't be able to function anymore. And at the same time, that vulnerability becomes a strength when you realize that what you're so afraid of, this big, big shadow looming over you, is not that big anymore when you turn around and you face it and you realize that it's not as big as it seemed to be. 
And this has to be done with lots of compassion for yourself and your environment. Because if you came to that, it's because certain things happen. Can you understand how this affected you? Can you have compassion for yourself? And you, can you have also compassion for those who created that in you? They were not born on earth to make your life miserable. And yet this happened. You got wounded in the process. And then you're carrying that wound around and you can forget where it initiated. Next thing you know, you keep on having that protective strategy that tells you this is the best way to behave here. So I make sure that uh, nothing bad happens to me. So, for example, one of my clients toughened uh, herself up because when she was a little girl, her mother would uh, be very uh, punishing if she did not do things absolutely right. So she became very much a perfectionist who was always afraid of failing or doing something wrong. She was really afraid of being punished. Now, this is something that happened to her when she was seven, eight years old. And today at 40-something, she's still behaving like she is in that environment where somebody's going to come and punish her if she does something wrong there. So to become aware of that dynamic was the first thing she needed to do to decide to change that and remind herself that, oh my God, I've got a little girl inside of me that is really scared of being punished. And today I'm a big girl. I've got other resources. I've got another level of ego maturity than when I was seven. And today I can handle it. But that little part of me doesn't know that. But now that I'm aware, I can be compassionate toward self, toward that little part of me, and I can soothe her and remind her, hey, you know what? You're not alone. I'm here. You don't have to do this. I'm going to be the one to do this. So I'm going to be standing in front of the executive committee, and I'm going to have my presence and my voice and my place to express what needs to be expressed. So I'm not afraid anymore that if I open my, ma my mouth, uh, something bad is going to happen to me. I'm going to be judged, rejected. And how many people do I have who are vice presidents and senior vice presidents who are really scared of talking to people above them? Because there's this whole relationship to authority that goes yeah. way back to their childhood. I've got yeah, a, a senior vice president that was in a big conflict with her CEO who was a, a, a man close to 70 years old and she was 45 years old until she realized how much this man represented something that reminded her of her father. And the way she was reacting to him had everything to do with that. She didn't know. She just realized. Now, we're not talking about doing psychotherapy when you do coaching, not at all. And it's important that a, a, a coachee understands, observe what you're doing today and ask yourself, is that still helping you? Is that useful? Or is that sabotaging you? Because if it is sabotaging you, you're the only one who can make the decision to self-correct. Nobody else. Nobody can force you. If you're not ready, you're not ready. Again, you can bring the horse to the water. You cannot force it to drink. So to be able to be open like that, you need to be yourself completely open without intention or agenda vis-a-vis -vis your client. You're not there to push anybody. You're just there to open that space and that container where trust happens. And when trust is there, when they feel that nobody's there to judge them, criticize them, reject them, or abandon them, they will start looking at what's happening inside of me, and I can do that in a safe place. And when that is done, they find their own resources and solutions. I don't bring anything to them. They have that inside of them. So I have positive yeah, regard to the resourcefulness 
and the capacity of my clients to be there present with themselves. And sometimes it takes a, a bit longer for some than others. And again, it's not about me. I don't need to push anything. I'm just going to be there opening even more space and helping that trust to be more present with us by just being curious and present and compassionate and mindful and aware with my clients. And if I can be like that, my client feels that, oh, I can be like that too. I notice automatic when they feel they're not judged, they don't judge themselves. Well, Nadia, I didn't even tell you, I'm already more calm now just because of this conversation. I'm so, I'm so chill <laughs> because of this. It, it was interesting that you talked about her, that one person with her need to be a perfectionist. I, and, and I'll get into the next question, but I saw recently a TED talk where a woman who had that same issue, she was a perfectionist. And her way of breaking that is she started, I think, like a YouTube channel where she just developed all these inventions that failed. She had one where I think it was the machine to tie her shoes and it absolutely didn't work, but she recorded it and posted it, but it was her way to just get comfortable yes. with failing because she said, to your point, because she was little, she always had to be perfect and it stopped her in board meetings and others because if she wasn't perfect, she felt like she couldn't move forward on any ideas and that was her way of breaking it. And so it's a lot of boxes people have to open up and well, you'll, you'll never be without clients the way I think Great. things are going. You talked about vulnerability. I just want to get to that because and I'm just conscious of the time we have a couple more questions. Leaders are always supposed to be out there and be like Superman or super superwoman. But now you hear a lot of talking about being vulnerable, to show that vulnerability, how important it is. Is it possible to show too much vulnerability? I know that sounds a bit crazy, but is that to be too open, too much showing all the damage that a leader potentially could have? I, I'm, I'm just kind of pushing things to the other way, but is that possible? Is it, would you ever say, hey, hey, I think you're showing a little too much here. You may want to you know, dial it back. Is that possible? Well, it's possible if you speak for your parts rather than from your parts. What I mean by that is if you explain to somebody what's happening with you at the moment that it's happening, that will be vulnerability because you're sharing something of your subjective reality with another human being and you're giving them the right to have a glimpse into your own intimate sphere. And yet it's important for you to communicate that because you don't want to have to hide or pretend otherwise. So the way to do it would be, as you are speaking for your grief or your sadness or for your irritation, your anger, whatever emotion you're having, you can just say it in a way that, hey, Craig, there's a part of me that is really scared that if this were to happen, this would ensue. So I'm hesitant here. I don't know what to do. So, and you are having like a, a peek through the window about what's happening inside that house. The question is, is that too much or not? Well, uh, there is something happening with this person that needs to share her or his authenticity because that has an impact on their behavior and the decision in whatever they have to do in this corporate world or anywhere uh, for that matter. And then decide that if you speak for your part, you're not going to speak with the same energy an outburst, and overwhelm than if you're allowing this part of you to take over, literally blend with you. And as it takes you over, next thing you know, you're going to lash out, lash out with anger, burst into tears in an uncontrollable manner, God knows what. So this is where, again, being mindful 
being aware is important that as you are practicing every day, noticing what triggers me, when it does trigger me, how do I know it triggered me? That becomes familiar to know that, oh my God, if I'm going to talk about that topic, I feel that my chest is contracting. I feel that my throat is choking. Next thing I know, I'm going to have tears in my eyes. And if I'm not careful, I'm going to burst into tears and I'm going to be overwhelmed. And I cannot allow myself to to do this because I happen to be a woman and I'm facing my CEO and he's going to think that I'm too vulnerable and too weak to handle the job. It's a total different game if that person were to come to see the CEO and just say, you know what, right now, I just want you to be aware that I have a certain number of things happening in my life right now. I'm I'm dealing with them. And I just wanted you to know that I may have a a part of me that might feel a bit uh, sensitive right now. The fact that she says that in the way she says it does not make the other person feel like, oh my God, this is going to be uncontrollable and it's going to be too much. At the same time, it gives them the opportunity to realize that, oh, okay, so this person is a bit sensitive right now and she's honest saying so. And that allows him to also kind of take a deep breath and ask himself, how am I doing right now? What am I feeling right now? Because that invites the other person to also do a check-in with themselves. So when you have everybody interacting this way with their whatever subjective reality they're going through at that moment and then just mentioning it, it's a way of being vulnerable because you're sharing what's happening inside of you rather than putting on the mask of Superman and Superwoman. At the same time, you're saying it in a way that is not overwhelming and is not imposing on the other. You're just sharing information in a very quiet, calm way. This is how I say being vulnerable becomes a strength. You know who you are. You're a human being. That human being happens to have somebody who just died horribly from the COVID. And now you're having to go back to the office. And who knows if you have been feeling like maybe I was the one to pass on that COVID to my grandma or whatever old people that I had around me. And now you're so scared coming back to the office. What are you going to do? Try to hide it? Not say anything about it? You could just as well just come and say, I would love to be able to do this, and I'm working on it, and I'm also aware that a part of me is very scared because this happened, and I'm working on it. It's work in progress. So by sharing that kind of vulnerability, telling people it's work in progress, people can listen to that. They don't get overwhelmed. They don't get defensive. This is your experience. You're putting words on your own experience. That's all. So let's just end on a couple of things. You and I talked about this, and we haven't mentioned it at all, I think maybe a little bit in the beginning. You talk about agility, how you also have to be agile. And so I want you to just maybe expand upon that a little bit, because we've gone through a lot of the good stuff about mindfulness, self-awareness, compassion, vulnerability, but the agility thing, I think more than ever, because things are changing, right, so rapidly now, and to have that agility. So I'd love to get your kind of thoughts on that as a key attribute. Again, it's going to be my own humble opinion. There are so yeah. many different ways of thinking agility for each different each person. The agility that I have, <laughs> I don't know, showcased experience uh, for myself is the ability to have courageous conversations, not being afraid, exactly using those uh, speaking for my parts rather than from my parts is very crucial for courageous conversations where you're going to be talking about things that need to be put on the table and it it might create like a wall of defensiveness and counter reactions and so on. 
yet it's necessary. So to be agile, to be able to move on and understand what's happening, it's taking the pulse at every moment. And for that, you need to have courageous conversations, not just try to avoid talking about what's the elephant in the room. That's number one. Number two, well, first, I would say the number one is the self-awareness. That's the number one quality of an agile leader, self-awareness. So number two, I would say, yes, uh, having courageous uh, conversations. Having also the ability to understand what wants to emerge rather than decide in advance that you know what is going to be. So being comfortable with uncertainty and what is unknown and trusting yourself, having a faith in yourself that you have enough resources to be out there finding the solutions. So you're not afraid of moving into an unknown space. So you start stepping maybe on a path that is full of fog and you're not afraid of putting one foot after the other, knowing that the fog will lift as you advance. If you are completely paralyzed at the beginning of the path because the fog is ahead of you, that means you're not as agile as those who decide that, you know what, I trust that I will be able to see where I put my foot and decide if it's safe as I go, and I trust that the fog will lift. So I guess it's important also to have some kind of a positivity and faith. Also be purpose-driven. When you're purpose-driven, you have more motivation because you know why you're doing what what you're doing. You have embarked everybody else on your project. That's why you're a leader, because you have followers or people have just asked you to be the leader because they want to follow you. They are inspired by you. Purpose-driven will definitely help you to be agile. Self-awareness, courageous conversation, and the ability for team cooperation, collective intelligence. You're not alone in this world. You don't have to do it all. You can rely yeah, on I think a lot of others. a lot of leaders feel that way, you know. And you have to learn how to make requests because people, some people are very afraid, especially leaders, to ask or make requests for help or for support. We're not isolated on an island. And that fog is pretty thick out there right now, so And being decisive, being decisive, because an agile leader is decisive in the sense that they are making a decision. It may not be the right one, but it's the best that they could make at that point. And they are ready to change their mind as they go and as circumstances change. That means being agile again. Me, I came to France. I was supposed to be spending the months of March in Paris and returning to Lebanon. Next thing you know, I'm stuck in Paris for three months, all alone in a tiny little place away from everybody. It didn't matter. I took that opportunity to work on myself, discover more about myself. What does it feel like when I'm alone like that and I'm thinking maybe tomorrow it's over or not? How do I face that? Same when it happened that the blast happened in Beirut. I was in Nice, ready to go back to Lebanon when I heard about the blast. For a moment, I was like, what? Grief came through and I completely and and consciously let that grief take me, run its course, and then make my decision. So it's not that you're going to be able to control things. The only thing that you can control is yourself. Circumstances and what life uh, throws at you as curveballs, you cannot control. So just accept it and do the best trusting yourself and having faith in yourself that you will find the resources as you go, rather than try to figure out all the answers before, because you won't. And I think because of this 
crisis, it's forced leaders to be that way because they didn't have any other choice. And at Black Moss, I, I put a piece out there about agility and I, I used a quote from Bob Marley. You never know how strong you are until that's the only option you have, exactly. right? So Nene, look, this has been great, great conversation. I guess I'll, I'll leave it in, you know, this is a kind of a loaded end question, but if, if a leader is sitting here right now listening to this podcast and they're really struggling right now during this crisis. They've, they've been a really strong leader before, but they find this crisis is really, they're starting to question their ability to be a strong leader. What do you say to them in terms of the first place to start, to trying to, to as you said, move forward through the fog? What would you say to them? I know this is a loaded question to give you, but I'm going <laughs> I'm to give it to you anyway. Take a deep breath, because when you are running amok with fears and doubts and skepticism, you may not be at the best possible space to find new ways. And when we are worried and when we are into our limbic brains and when we have our amygdala that tells us that we are in danger, we're not going to be able to use our prefrontal cortex to make rational, logical decisions. So that's the first thing to do. Calm down your system. Go from your sympathetic to your parasympathetic system by breathing. The breathing exercises, Navy SEALs do it, jet uh, fighter pilots do it for a reason. It's the way that you calm down the system so you can face what is it that you need to do and make a decision in an aligned, focused, grounded way. So that's the number one. Number two, go and examine your fears. When you're faced with such a crisis, what, the, what are the deepest fears that come up to the surface? Generally, they're all about, am I capable enough? Am I knowledgeable enough? Am I able enough? Am I lovable enough? These are all the questions we ask ourselves that have been put there for such a long time. It doesn't date from today and from my job as a leader today. So that might be your opportunity to go and, and, and revisit some of those fears and realize that some of them were true when you were a child, when you were five, six, seven, eight, and you did not have the resources that you have today. So is that an echo of the past you're still feeling or not? And if it's an echo of the past, can you offer yourself self-compassion for that little part of you that feels like I'm not good enough or I'm not able enough or I'm not knowledgeable enough? If that is the case, can you find a way to have a dialogue with that part of you to let it know, hey, it's not you that has to do this. It's me. It's me, the big adult Craig that I am today. It's not you, the little Craig, that will have to make that decision. And that makes a whole difference to just realize that you're much more resourceful today and you have much more abilities today than you had when something bad happened to you that taught you that you were not good enough or not able enough or God knows what. All great stuff. We could go on and on and on. So I just want to say thank you for your time. This has been very, very informative. I hope our listeners have gotten the value that I think that you've put out there. And I wish you all the best for things going forward. And I'm a better, more mindful person because of this. <laughs> well, so, thank you, thank Craig, you. for trusting this process. And thank you for everything you are doing right now. And I hope that our listeners will just come back to say, there's nothing that is lacking inside of them. And the answer is not outside of them. It's inside. So if they can lead from the inside out, they will find out that they are much more powerful than they believe they are, and they will be fine and going through this crisis no matter what. Great. Well, Nadine, thanks a lot. Thank you. Be Greg. well. Thank you for joining us for this edition 
of the Leaders Lounge podcast. For more insights from industry leaders about overcoming challenges and realizing success in times of change and uncertainty, please go to blackmosspartners.com.